For March 23rd, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Since peak oil entered the general lexicon about 10 years ago, it has been transformed from a theory to a reality, depending on what you count as oil, to a token of tribalism and a locus around which a very long-running debate between Malthusians and Cornucopians regrouped, and then to the butt of endless jokes, and now it seems like it's on the verge of dissipation and irrelevance. But for serious students of peak oil like me, and our guest in this episode, peak oil has always been one thing, a model of oil production, and that's based on data. The rate of oil production, to be precise, usually measured in millions of barrels per day. And it is that version of peak oil which has arguably attracted the least attention and the fewest adherents. Because understanding the data is hard, and it's not very much fun, unless you're a super geeky for that sort of thing. And in the end, it's stark. Either the rate of oil production is going up, or it isn't. And if it isn't, then we have to ask if it will rise again, or if it is finally on its inevitable glide path back to zero. It's all pretty dry and technical, and it's much more fun to proclaim your faith in humanity and human technological development and paint yourself an optimist, or on the other end of the spectrum, to pronounce visions of doom and collapse and paint yourself as a Cassandra. Or, if you believe in standard economic theory, then it's an opportunity to remind us all that everything is fungible and the cure for high prices is high prices and all the rest of that canon of beliefs, waving away the fearsome prospect of peak oil with the assertion that it's all about price. And that the extremely low prices we have had for the past year and a half are all the proof anyone needs that peak oil was wrong. And so on and so on, in an endless kabuki theater that actually has nothing at all to do with the data. But that's not where the notion of peak oil originated, and that's not what will ultimately matter. In this episode of the Energy Transition Show, I interview Mason Inman, a seasoned, award-winning science journalist who has written for Scientific American, National Geographic News, Science, Economist.com, and the San Francisco Chronicle, among other publications. Mason is one of those rare journalists who actually builds data sets, writes code to analyze it, and then writes about what the data says. He is no mere demagogue. For the past several years, Mason has been doing deep research on the man who invented the peak oil theory, Marion King Hubbard, who is more often called M. King Hubbard, or King Hubbard, or just plain Hubbard. 
and he has published the first ever biography of Hubbard, The Oracle of Oil, A Maverick Geologist's Quest for a Sustainable Future, which will be out on April 11th. I have read the book, and as a serious student of the subject, I found it fascinating, not only to learn something about the historical context in which Hubbard's work took place, mainly from the 1940s to the 1970s, but to see very clearly how the debates we are having today about the future of energy and our best options for energy transition have hardly changed at all since Hubbard was engaged in them. Today we are having the same arguments often presented by people in the same camps that we were having 60 years ago. But this fact should not suggest to us that it's one of those eternal, unanswerable questions. Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. I believe that we are about to see, at long last, the ultimate peak in all liquids production that Hubbard foresaw 60 years ago, and fairly accurately forecast, by the way, plus or minus about a decade. Indeed, I believe that our fatigue with the debate about peak oil is going to weigh to our detriment because, lulled to torpor by the temporary period of insanely, unsustainably low prices, we are already, right now, failing to take the action that we need to take in order to make the transition off of oil as smooth and orderly as possible. By laughing off the prospect of peak oil now, we are, in fact, buying ourselves a significant load of pain in the future. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll discuss all those things and more in this wide-ranging interview. Since this interview is more than twice as long as a typical interview for this podcast, I hope you'll pace yourselves, take a break, come back to it, and finish it at your leisure, but I do hope that you'll listen to the whole thing. Chances are good that you'll come away from it with a very different concept of peak oil and its progenitor than you used to have. So let's bring Mason into the conversation. Welcome, Mason, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. So let's, for the benefit of listeners who may not know, who was M. King Hubbard? Let's talk about who was the man, M. King Hubbard. He was a geologist who worked for the government and in the oil industry for many decades. First, he was working for the government during World War II. Then he was one of the top researchers at Shell Oil from the mid-40s through the mid-60s. And then he went back to the government to work for the U.S. Geological Survey. And throughout this whole time, he was developing these ideas about limits to oil resources and how much we could extract that he became really famous for. Okay, so what exactly did he think? Like, what was his conception of peak oil? So he was uh, warning that there are limits to how much we would be able to extract per year. So the production at the point when he started talking about these things had been going up and up for decades, ever since the beginning of the oil age in the mid-1800s. And so the idea that the production would not keep going up and up and that it would reach some kind of peak was really counterintuitive to a lot of people. There had been some scares or you know, some worries in decades past that the U.S. would reach some kind of peak like this before, and then those forecasts did not pan out. Okay, so let's and, talk about why he thought there was a concern about this. Like, exactly how did his model work? So... I mean, this is a geeky crowd here. Don't, don't be afraid. He developed these ideas over decades, and so he didn't just have one single approach, even though a lot of times people present it that way. So at first, he was just saying, let's say there's a finite amount of oil that you have to extract, and that the estimates at any given time are 
in the right ballpark for how much we're going to be able to pull out. Then what are the implications of that? So he started with this in 1949 when there was this big United Nations meeting that he went to where they gathered experts from all over the world to talk about resources. And the person that they chose to talk about oil was this guy who had been in the industry for many years and then became a professor at Stanford. And it made sense to have an American give this talk about oil because America was the king of oil. They had produced more oil than anybody else. And this guy gave this talk where he said, well, we can estimate that, you know, there's around two trillion barrels that we could extract. But these estimates have kept going up and up in the past. So they'll probably go up a lot more in the future. And if there's any failure to produce enough to meet global demand in the next 500 years, it will be because of some kind of failure of effort, not because of any limits to what is in the ground. Hmm. And Hubbard was sitting there in the audience listening to this, and he wasn't expecting the speaker to say anything particularly surprising. And as he recalled it, he almost fell out of his chair when he heard that this guy was saying, there'll be no shortages for several hundred years. And so Hubbard had not really done any uh, concrete analysis of when he thought oil production might peak, but he just intuitively, that did not make sense to him. So he decided, I'm going to go argue with this guy. And he went down to the floor. And meanwhile, all these other experts were coming up, like the head of the geological survey in Great Britain and so on, saying, oh, this is great news. What the speaker has to say I'm sure we're all welcome this news that there's not really any reason to worry about oil supplies. This was coming at a time when there there were some short-term shortages because it was right after World War II. There was this big boom of consumption of oil after the war because consumption for regular people had been held down yeah, by the Great Depression. Yeah, post-war boom. Like, yeah, yeah, so the post-war boom. And so the the Secretary of Interior at the time was warning that the U.S. was not going to be able to produce enough to meet its consumption. Up to that point, it had been an oil exporter who was producing more than the country consumed. But it was right on this verge of consuming more than it produced, then it would have to get oil from elsewhere. And the obvious place... Now, what year are we in now? 1949. Okay. The The obvious place to get oil from at that point was... The Middle East. Right. It wasn't huge then. Like Texas alone was producing more than the whole Middle East at that point. Right. But the production was rising really fast and people realized that there was a really big potential in the Middle East. So the Secretary of Interior was trying to warn people we should be careful about growing dependence on, on Middle East oil in the decades to come. So there were some reasons to worry, but basically the attitude at this meeting was hey, there's nothing to worry about. So Hubbard challenged that. It spurred this whole debate at the conference. And in the end, nothing really got resolved because some people had this estimate, some people had that estimate, and there was no real consensus about where things were going. And in the end, people just wound up disregarding any warnings about a coming peak or coming shortages. Okay, so it was at that point then that Hubbard got much more serious about being empirical and analytical 
about his projections yeah. and proceeded with his method. So as I understand it, you'll tell me if I'm wrong. As I understand it, his method was estimate the ultimate recoverable resource, the URR, and then basically draw a bell curve of production around that quantity and then realize that wherever the midpoint of that bell curve is, is probably more or less when in reality you're going to have the peak of your production. And it'll be about halfway through the total resource. So when your model shows that you're getting close to that point, you realize that in reality you're plus or minus a few years probably from that point. So it's, it was supposed to be a useful policy tool. I mean, he was trying to do modeling based on estimate of resource that would be useful to the U.S. government. Yeah, so when the paper that he did that was in the talk and the paper that was, he's most known for was in 1956, and it was a speech that he gave to the American Petroleum Institute, and he used that method that you were describing where he took mainstream, pretty well-accepted estimates for how much oil the U.S. might yield over the long term. And, you know, he made his own little tweaks to it, but basically he used these numbers that were already out there. And he came up with this value of 150 billion barrels that the U.S. would be able to yield. And just to be clear, this is talking about conventional oil, the kind where you just drill into the ground and oil comes out or you can pump it out. We're not talking about oil shale or tar sands or anything where you have to do more complicated stuff to right. make it into actual oil. Right. And so he said, okay, let's take this number that people seem to accept and then let's look over the long term to say, what are the implications really? And he found with the production that had already occurred and the, you know it had been still rising at that point, so you assume it's not going to just drop off a cliff suddenly. It's probably going to keep rising for at least a few more years and you have some kind of smooth curve like this bell-shaped curve, it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion that the peak was going to come in the not-too-distant future. And where he pinned it with that estimate for the total recovery of 150 billion barrels was it looked like it would come in about 10 years, around 1965. And then he said... Because he was making this model in 1956. In 1956, yes. Okay, so he was saying, based on generally accepted estimates of the ultimately recoverable resource... In 1956. Yeah. Probably hit the peak around 1965. Okay. But then he said, okay, you know, these things aren't totally nailed down, so what if there's more oil? Let's add another 50 billion barrels on to get to a total Just of 200 billion barrels. Just for a fudge factor, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then he showed, that's a lot more oil. That's 25% more. Well, actually, well, a third more. Yeah. yeah. A third more oil. Right. But the effect that it has on when the peak would come, as long as you assume that you have this smooth kind of, of roughly bell-shaped curve, the effect is not actually that much. It would only delay the peak about five years. Okay. And so then, if there was that larger amount of oil available, maybe the peak would come around 1970. So this is this range that he became known for, of saying the peak's going to come around 1965 to 1970. And then in reality, the peak happened in 1970. Exactly. And so Hubbard had been very much reviled, criticized, ridiculed by people within and without his profession. 
who just didn't like this message. Yeah. And then in 1970, he was vindicated. Now, how long did it take for that recognition to happen? How long did it take for the world to go, oh, you know what? He was right about that 1970 thing. It took until after 1970, until the 1973 OPEC embargo before he okay. really So that's when recognized. people in the oil industry finally was like, oh, you know what? It happened in 1970 and Hubbard was probably right. Yeah. Okay. So then that was a U.S. model. Yes. Okay. So what was his model for the world? Before we get into that, I thought he didn't just say, let's take a total amount of oil for the ultimate production from the U.S. and then fill a bell curve to it, and that's it. He developed a number of other methods in the years after that that he used to try to forecast production in the U.S., and that did not rely on assuming the ultimate production at the beginning. So how did they work? So one was he tried looking at the number of large fields or giant fields that had been discovered over time. So these are fields that have at least 100 million barrels of oil in them. And it looked like the rate of discovery of those big fields was dropping off over time. And so he thought it's getting harder to find them. We can use this to put some boundaries on how much oil it is that we're going to be able to get. It turned out to be more complicated to do that kind of analysis than he thought at first because not all big fields are recognized as being big initially. You might drill into them and think they're a certain size, and then as you drill more, you realize, actually, it's a much bigger field than we had thought at first. So this was an issue that people call reserve growth, but there wasn't really any analysis of this kind of thing at that point not any analysis of to try to say what's the reserve growth of all the fields in the U.S. over time or anything like that. So that was something that he had to tackle in order to try to build a better forecast. Another method that he used was to look at how many barrels of oil are being discovered for every foot of exploratory drilling that you do. And so he could take these estimates of how much exploratory drilling there had been, and look at the amount of oil that was discovered each year. But again, this was in a case where when it's not always obvious in a particular year how much oil you've discovered in that year. You discover some oil fields, but you don't know exactly how much is in them. And how much is in them only becomes apparent over time. So for both of these analyses, he had to try to understand how how reserve growth works, right. how these right. fields Seemed so, so there was always an idea in his modeling that there would be reserve growth. Yeah. That was always well, baked into the idea. Not, not the very initial versions, right, right, but right, later. after he came out with this initial version okay. and said, if we base it on an assumption of a certain amount of ultimate oil, people didn't really like his conclusions. So then they just started magically coming up with much bigger numbers within... A year of him giving this 1956 speech that got a lot of attention, the estimates that were generally accepted went from... Estimates coming from where? These are from a number of sources like the Department of Interior and the U.S. government. They were industry estimates, like Oil and Gas Journal at that time would do surveys of some companies and then report these things anonymously. Okay. And different things. And the U.S. Geological Survey. 
they were not at that point really making any resource estimates for the U.S. Okay. They were not very much involved. That came later. Yeah, that came later. Okay, so let's talk about how Hubbard got to his global model of production. How did he do it? Was it, again, this concept of estimating the total production for the world and then drawing a bell curve around it and estimating from there? It was that kind of thing, but he also argued that that was not really a sufficient method and that he was always trying to find ways of getting the data in order to do a better analysis like what he had done for the U.S., where you look at barrels per exploratory foot of drilling or you know measures of how many large fields have been discovered and other things like that that can give you some idea without an assumption at the beginning right. about how much oil will so be, a more be empirical extracted. method and he was still in search of the better method yeah okay so when he when did he come up with his global model so he was making forecasts for world oil production for many years starting in 1949 with that UN meeting that I talked about where he was taking this assumption of around 2,000 billion barrels and saying if we burn it fast, maybe we'll have a peak in the early 21st century. If we burn it slow, maybe it'll be in the middle of the 21st century, like 2050 or something. So real but rough ballpark that, estimates yeah, at first. Yeah. And then eventually it came down to where he actually had a pretty discrete model for the world. Yes and no. I mean, he had his own kind of intuitive idea, but he would present these kind of bell-shaped curves for the world up until the 1973 oil embargo, which was the first time when anybody had really tried to affect the production of oil for political It was the first time that OPEC really asserted its power. It had tried before and did not succeed. Right. It was not a coincidence that the first time that they succeeded was after U.S. oil production peaked. Because the the U.S. had been the biggest producer. The U.S. has been the biggest producer and the biggest consumer. Right. And it had been able to supply most of what it needed from its own production, but not all. And suddenly when the peak came, it was needing more and more imports every year. Okay, so when was Hubbard's canonical or or most recent most discrete model for world production when did he make it well after the 1973 oil embargo then he was saying look there are different paths that this could follow we could if we followed a path that was like what we had been on before where production would just keep going up and up as long as it could then uh, production might peak very soon like in 1980 or something but We could also have a situation where, for political reasons, the production for the whole world winds up being roughly flat from the early 1970s onward. And then he looked at how long that kind of plateau might last if you were to drag it out, and it would be until maybe the 2030s. And he said, these are two extreme scenarios, and the actual production will probably be somewhere in between these two. And somewhere in between these two was when? So, I mean, it couldn't be anywhere between 1980 and 2030s. Right. And so his favorite idea was around the year 2000, roughly. Okay. But he wouldn't have been 
super militant about saying it's going to be 2000 like yeah it wouldn't have surprised him if it was 1995 or 2005 or whatever yeah he wasn't trying to nail down an exact year what was more important to him was trying to get people to think about the that there long-term could course. be a peak first of all yeah that there could be a peak that could come surprisingly soon that you have to look at the long-term course of things in order to try to get an idea roughly of when it was going to come. So in this kind of two-scenario case that he would show, he was trying to emphasize that there's a role for geopolitics and so on that can influence when the peak would come exactly. So he certainly anticipated there being exogenous factors that would change things. Politics, new technologies, new discoveries... Fuel substitution, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the fuel substitution and so on is a somewhat different issue, but he was definitely aware that there were alternatives to oil and was urging the world to switch off of them because that's the whole issue about peak oil is right. how are we going to transition off of oil. So was 1973 basically the last major iteration of Hubbard's model for the world? In the 70s, and later in the 70s, he published a couple of papers that had a bit about world oil production in them, where he would present these two scenarios showing how geopolitics could have an effect. Okay. So there's been 30, almost almost 40 years transpired, really, between when Hubbard was actively doing modeling and, and today. So obviously a lot has changed. Obviously, world oil production did continue to increase. Yeah. And it it increased to a higher level than Hubbard anticipated. But within the plus or minus sort of five-year bracket that he expected. Yeah. Which would have been kind of the nominal or notional middle of this range of forecast that he was actually working with. Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. Now, let's talk about what other people thought of Hubbard's models. Okay. Like when he was making his forecast for U.S. production to peak in 1970, in 1956, what were people saying? So people generally disregarded this, people in industry, but also people in government. The arguments were that he had, you know, left out some crucial factor or many crucial factors from his analysis. So they said technology can develop and prices can increase and these things can make it so that we will ultimately extract a lot more oil than Hubbard had thought and that the main mainstream ideas thought at, at any given time. But the problem with this is that it doesn't really have any limits to it. The idea that prices and technology would just keep increasing how much we could extract forever, apparently. So that, that was the view at the time of his opponents was, there's really no limit. We can, we can keep increasing, prices will cooperate. We, we don't see any real indication that there's going to be a limit to production at all in 1956. Yeah, so... Like some of his main opponents were from this oil company called Humble Oil. That was the largest producer of oil in the U.S. at that time. And they were owned about half or a bit more by uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey, which 
and they wound up merging and became ExxonMobil later. But these are so these are big players in the oil industry who were criticizing Hubbard. And their main concern at that time was whether the US would consume enough oil and also whether too much oil would come in from the Middle East and undermine their ability to sell oil at prices that they could actually turn a profit off of in the US. You know, barrels extracted in right. the US selling for profit. So because of their concerns about Middle East oil and about consumption, they were really not thinking about any kind of limits to how much oil might get extracted. Humble oil wasn't thinking about that. No. no. And so they were trying to shoot down Hubbard's ideas. Okay. They wanted protection from Middle East oil, and they wanted the U.S. to extract as much as possible to maximize their profits. So did Hubbard have any allies with his, his kind of peak forecast at the time? Basically, no. no. I mean, even at Shell, they gave him permission to give this talk in 1956. Grudging permission. Well, it wasn't grudging so much at the time, but a couple people got wind of it, and right as he was about to give the speech, he got called off the stage to field a call from somebody at the headquarters in New York saying, please tone it down, like, the stuff about the peak of oil coming in the not-too-distant future, that's just ridiculous. And he said, this is just a pretty straightforward analysis based on well-accepted right. ideas, right. and he disregarded them and went ahead and gave his speech. Okay. So but, he didn't have any allies for his theory in 1956. Yeah. Okay, so after the 1970 peak, like in the 80s and the 90s, what was the state of thinking about peak oil then? Or was anybody doing more modeling. Well, there's the early 80s right after the second oil shock, and then there's later in the 80s that are a lot different times. But if we take from 1986, when there was a crash in the price of oil, through the 90s when oil prices remained low, there was relatively little attention to these issues. There weren't very many forecasts issued for when oil production might peak in the world, and there wasn't much attention to estimates of what the ultimate amount that might be extracted would be. And some organizations like the U.S. Energy Information Administration and also the International Energy Agency, in the late 70s, they had both issued forecasts that were showing world oil production peaking around the year 2000. But then when oil prices dropped, even those organizations stopped issuing any kind of forecasts like that and generally said there wasn't anything to worry about with world oil production peaking. So when did this happen? Like, when did they stop forecasting a global peak around 2000 and just not talk about it anymore? It was after this 1986 oil price crash. Right. So price got low. And scared everybody away from the peak oil thesis. Yeah. And just for the sake of our listeners, let's refresh very briefly why that happened. Why did oil prices crash? So when there was this 1973 OPEC embargo, they wanted to get a lot more dollars per barrel for the oil that they were selling, so they raised their prices. So that was the first oil shock. Then there was a second oil shock with the Iranian revolution in 1979 which drove the prices even higher. Both of those meant that 
there were a lot of places around the world where it became profitable to extract oil that wouldn't have been profitable before. So there was a big boom in drilling in the North Sea. So England and Norway and Denmark started producing oil where they had basically produced nothing before. There's a big offshore field found in Mexico that started producing a lot of oil. This big field in Alaska, Prudhoe Bay, that was the biggest field ever found in the United States, and it still is the biggest that's ever been found in the United States. That one finally came online as well. Right. And so these higher oil prices did bring forth a bunch of additional production. And all of a sudden, people didn't believe in peak oil anymore. Well, yeah. Those prices crashed. Yeah. Well, another side of it, though, was about the consumption of oil. So people were burning a lot of oil in power plants, and they cut that back because it didn't make sense anymore when oil is expensive to burn it in power plants. Right. So back to just kind of the quick review of modeling here. Okay. So after Hubbard's latest model, circa 1973, nobody was really doing any real peak oil modeling. There was no real attention to the matter given. There was new production happening. There was new discoveries happening. Prices were low. Nobody believed. Nobody cared anymore. Generally, yeah, that's true. That, okay. Yeah. Until 1998, when Colin Campbell and Jean Larere published an article about peak oil in, in Scientific American. So, before they had their article in Scientific American, there was a whole bunch about peak oil in the 1998 International Energy Agency World Energy Outlook. And a lot of it was actually inspired by their work, but it was before they had published this Scientific American article. So Colin Campbell was a geologist who had worked at BP for many years. Jean Larere was a geophysicist who had worked at the French oil giant Total for many years. And they had been analyzing the world oil situation using this database that was the best thing around at that point from this organization called Petro Consultants in Switzerland. And they thought that there was signs from the data in this database that something around the, like the estimates that Hubbard had been working with of around 2 trillion barrels of conventional oil, that that was likely to be roughly the limit of how much would be extracted over the long term. So they were using a lot more data than what Hubbard had available to him, and they were coming up with an answer that was roughly similar to what he had had. And they used a method that was somewhat similar to what he had used in his early studies, like in 1956, where he had said, let's start with an estimate for the total amount of oil that we think would be ultimately extracted and fit a bell curve to this and try to get a rough idea of when the peak might come. And so they did this in 1998, and they came up with a number, if I remember right, that it would peak in the early 2000s. And after that, they couldn't say exactly how things would proceed because it depends on how people react to it. But they talked about that there could be an undulating plateau where instead of just production going up and then sharply dropping off after that, because of feedbacks between oil production and the price of oil and the state of the economy, that production might go up 
then the economies might falter, production would fall a bit, the price would fall, then it could pick up again with economic growth picking up. But there's this kind of feedback between all these forces that would mean it's kind of messy for a while and you are roughly on a plateau. But eventually it's going to start declining again. And this is this long-term problem that we have to start playing for well in advance if we're going to make any kind of smooth transition away from oil. Right. Okay. So, 1998, Campbell and Larere had refreshed the Hubbard hypothesis, essentially, and updated the data and come up with substantially similar numbers for the URR and for the timing of the peak. Yeah. Okay. 2005 is when I think a lot of people, including us, had really tuned into the peak oil dialogue. And we started finding each other on places like Yahoo message boards, and then the oil drum was established. And so there was a whole rich dialogue that happened at the oil drum for quite a few years of people who have studied this data and are interested in these modeling techniques. And, and so there was a real debate, a rich debate, that went on at the oil drum for years. And at the same time, Campbell and Larere and some other folks had, had founded the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, an international organization. Mm-hmm. And then later, there was the U.S. chapter of that, ASPO USA, which had its first conference in 2005. I was actually at that conference. And so there was a bunch of folks, like I remember uh, Henry Grappi, Richard Heinberg, Albert Bartlett, Roscoe Bartlett. In fact, I remember somebody in the audience yelling out a joke about Bartlett Pear. Anyway. <laughs> So so that was around 2005, was like that whole dialogue started amongst people, you know, sort of in the modern era, about peak oil. Okay. And so we had all these conferences. TOD was publishing stuff every single day. Yeah, that's the oil drum, right? The oil drum. To talk about, you know, what does the latest model say? When, is we're, when are we actually going to hit the peak? So that was 2005. When did we actually hit the peak conventional oil production 2006 2006 right after all this dialogue really happened right after the oil drum was launched but it wasn't clear at the, at the we time. didn't know then so then we had the worldwide commodity explosion the financial meltdown of the global economy 2008 then we had the depression or great recession whatever QE all over the world, all sorts of attempts made to restore growth since that point. 2014, summer 2014, prices started to fall for oil. It's been, what, 20 months since then. Because prices started to crash, all of a sudden I see all these people who always hated the peak oil story suddenly running out with the courage to shoot the wounded and say, oh, we always knew that peak oil was dumb. And prices are so low now that it proves that peak oil was dumb. Yeah. And everybody was afraid of it in 2007, 2008, and everybody talked about it for years. But as it turned out, that was all wrong and it was dumb. Okay, first of all, 2007, 2008, I was there. People were not talking about it. They were not taking it seriously. This was not something that was being 
seriously entertained in the pages of the major publications out there. Yeah, this is this really weird revisionist history thing that's yeah. going on right now. Thank and you. And it's not even just from like weird fringe people. It's even coming from the International Energy Agency. Where you bet. I was reading their medium term. Wait, oil who? Market. Us? We said <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. This, I'm reading their report, their latest one that came out in February, the, the medium-term oil market report. Right. And it says, you know, something along the lines of everyone used to be worried about peak oil, and now they're not anymore. And I'm like, everyone? Everyone? Because so, so I, I was there. I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember people taking peak oil seriously back then. Yeah, so I don't really know what the deal is with that, but it's definitely true that Everyone is lining up right now to say that the low oil prices, you know, undermine any kind of peak oil concerns. Right. And along with it, I think we're hearing a lot of other, not only revisionist history, but just straight up myths about whatever peak oil meant. So let's take a minute because I know that you've actually collected some of these. Yeah. So let's take a minute and talk about the sort of mistaken ideas about peak oil that have been promulgated in the press or other myths about what major progenitors in the peak oil thought movement thought. So yeah, I mean, one of the big ones was about price. And people would say that Hubbard and other peak oil people thought rising prices wouldn't make any difference. So to take one example, we have Daniel Jurgen, who's now treated as one of the nations and the world's greatest energy experts. Oh, yeah. And he wrote this Pulitzer... He's an oracle from what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Prize. That's a history of the oil industry. And everyone cites him every time he appears anywhere as yeah. this Pulitzer Prize winning if author. Ever, if you ever need to cite an oil expert in any mainstream publication, you're always going to want to cite Daniel Yergin. Yeah. Yeah. And so... When he wanted to make a strong argument against peak oil in 2011, when his latest book, The Quest, was coming out, he wrote, Hubbard insisted that price didn't matter. So that's pretty straightforward, Yeah. except it's not true. <laughs> so what Hubbard actually said was rising prices will make some fields more attractive economically, so you'll get more production than you would have at low prices. Right. But he said, this isn't some kind of panacea. It's not something that can just happen forever indefinitely. If you have a rise in oil prices, sure, you can get some more oil production for a bit with some limits. But the price can't just go up and up and up from $10 a barrel to a million dollars a barrel and bring forth thousands of times more oil than what you would get at $10 a barrel. But that was the way that people generally talked about it in Hubbard's time. And then people are still talking about it the same way now, right. where the discussion is not that sophisticated. They just say, you've ignored price, or price will bring forth more production. And people aren't very good about putting data on it. Yeah, I think we all, we all realize that. So what other myths have so, been said? Yeah, there's another one that technology would bring forth more resources and allow production to keep increasing. And people would say that Hubbard ignored technological development or that he assumed that 
technology would be static. Or that the peak model of production would be sort of exclusively driven by geology, that there was nothing that economics could do to overcome those limits. Yeah, and so supposedly it was some kind of thing where if there was no technological development and no change in the prices, then you would get a certain kind of path for the production over time that would be something like these bell-shaped curves that the peakists are known for. But then, with the magic of technology and prices, then, you know, anything's possible. So Jürgen was another one who was saying this kind of thing. You know, when in 2011, he said, Hubbard had a view that technology was just going to be static. And Jürgen's firm, called Sarah, Cambridge Energy Research Associates. Which is now part of IHS. Yeah. They had had a report years earlier in 2006 called Why the Peak Oil Theory Falls Down. And they, you know, made these same kind of arguments then where they said, Hubbard's methodology falls down because it does not consider likely resource growth, application of new technology, basic commercial factors, or the impact of geopolitics on production. And so as we already talked about, actually considered all these things, he was actually the first one to give any kind of quantitative estimate for reserve growth for fields in the U.S., huh. you know, for the whole set of fields in the so U.S. So not only did he anticipate it, he was the first one to quantify it. Yeah. Right. But then people didn't really like the answer that he came up with. And so, so, <laughs> so what did Hubbard know about like the future of technology? Like, What did he know about fracking? So he was the one who first explained how fracking works physically. What? <laughs> so he didn't, like, invent fracking. An oil company during World War II called Staniland, or Standard Oil of Indiana, they were the ones that first developed hydraulic fracturing as a method to try to get more oil out of the ground. After many years of other people doing all kinds of crazy things, like dropping dynamite down holes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and nitroglycerin. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So people had tried everything they could to try to tweak oil fields and see if more oil would come out. And this was just another one of those kind of things that wasn't obvious whether it would actually work. But it did actually start working. So it became really popular. People started doing it a whole bunch in the 50s, especially in West Texas. In so Hubbard was the oil. first one to explain how this worked, sort of formally. Yeah, so there was this argument going on within the oil industry about how it worked, where the, the company that first developed this technique, they thought that the fractures would open up in a particular direction. They thought it would be horizontal in the ground. And some others said, we think they actually be vertical. And Hubbard heard these debates at a conference, but he thought actually both sides are not really making sense. Their analysis of what's going on with the physics doesn't make sense. And he was really good at physics. He was a geologist, some say, or a geophysicist, but he was good at physics. So he did an analysis at Shell because they gave him this task when there's this debate going on, figure out what is going on with fracking. And so he came up with a theoretical explanation of how the uh, fracturing works. And that is now regarded as a classic paper that people still cite today. And so basically he explained how fracking works when nobody was really sure at the time. So clearly the allegation that Hubbard was somehow unaware of the miracle of fracking that would come decades later, totally wrong. 
Yeah, so he did not foresee the huge production of shale gas and tight oil that would come from fracking. That's fair to say. But nobody else did really either. Even the people who were big optimists about technology and price and so on. Right. They weren't saying, oh, if only the price gets up to $100 a barrel, then we're going to start fracking these right. tight oil formations. And 30 years before it actually happened. Right. right. Nobody was saying that. No. No. And so it wasn't like that he was just some super grumpy pessimist who, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was the reason why he came up with these lower estimates. So he was aware of these technological developments. He tried to incorporate them in his studies of oil production. So, for example, when he was looking at the discoveries per foot of exploratory drilling that was done, he said this record that we can look at where we look at this statistic over time, it incorporates a lot of development of tools for finding oil, like seismographs, and for drilling and getting it out of the ground. And so we can look at this long-term record that actually reflects the, the technological development that has occurred at the same time. And there could be a break from this trend if there was some huge technological development that nobody could have foreseen and that was a complete break from the historical record. But if you assume that technological development will more or less proceed the way that it had been for decades before, then you would probably follow something like the trend that had been going on there, which was that they were finding less and less barrels for each foot of exploratory drilling. So he clearly he clearly understood what the future of technology might be and how it might affect future production. So that myth, that myth is busted, that he didn't understand that future prices or future technology could change things. Yeah. All right. What else? What else you got? I mean, I think those are the, the big ones. Price, okay. technology, the reserve growth idea. I mean, the other big one that we hadn't talked about explicitly was about unconventional oil. So okay. people say... Oh, but there's there's not just the field that you drill into and oil comes out. There's tar sands, there's oil shale, like in Colorado. Right, there's you, biofuels. Yeah, there's biofuels, there's these different things. We can turn coal into liquid fuels, we can turn gas into liquid fuels. Yeah, so people say, well, Hubbard just didn't know about these things. He wasn't aware of tar sands and so on. But that is just a complete myth because all you have to do is read his papers and you see he made estimates for how much he thought tar sands might yield over the long term, huh. how much oil shale might yield, and so on. And So that was in his original modeling. So in his 1956 paper, he put in estimates for those things, but it wasn't part of the bell curve that he drew because that was just for the conventional oil. So he was saying, you know, we can add on a bit more from tar sands and oil shale and so on, but it's not going to totally replace the conventional oil that we've been using so we need to work on other things. Right. And he had some ideas about what that might be, and his ideas about how to transition off oil changed over time. But the general point is he was aware of that there were other ways of turning things into some kind of liquid that you could put in your car's gas tank. Okay, now I thought you had like a whole list of myths. We've been through two and you're done. That was four. Oh, that was four? Okay. Reserve growth. 
All right. Technology, price, and tar sands and other unconventionals. Okay. okay. But you got, I can, you got I, more? I can do a whole show on myths about Hubbard. <laughs> pick, pick a couple good ones and let's let's run through them here. So I said one other big one was that people say Hubbard assumed that oil production must follow a bell curve or that he got this bell curve by looking at what individual fields do and then saying the whole U.S. or the whole world will be like one giant oil field and will exhibit the same kind of behavior where the production goes up, gradually, you know, reaches a plateau and then drops off. And he didn't say that. Nothing that he wrote was looking at individual oil fields and okay. how their production is. So just to recap, Hubbard was never saying that economics didn't matter and it was purely a geological phenomenon. He never said that there would not be reserve growth or that there would not be a growth in production as new technology made new resources available. Right. And he did not say that production would follow a rigorous bell curve and that it would look exactly like that. Right. And he did not say that oil would peak in a specific year and it had to be that year and that there wasn't going to be a plateau or some other different shape around that year. Right. Okay. Now that we've got that out of the way, <laughs> let's talk about how you plan for energy transition. I mean, back then, especially in 1973, okay, so we got the Carter administration, we got the Arab oil embargo. I remember sitting in line in, in those years waiting to buy a couple gallons of gasoline in the hot Tucson sun for like a year and a half. That sucked. That sucked. I'm glad I was young enough to not remember. I was probably sitting in a car at that time, but yeah, in well, a, you're just in sitting there in seat. line at like 105 degrees waiting for, for an hour and a half to, to buy a couple gallons of gasoline on your odd even day, depending on your license plate. Yeah. Back then they were trying to do planning for energy transition. I mean, that was some of the work that Hubbard was involved in was trying to help the U.S. government figure out what the future production of resources could look like and how they needed to plan their own energy consumption Yeah, I or mean, their own energy policy. There was basically no planning, and he was trying to get them to take seriously that there were limits to resources and they, they would need to start planning. And so... After this 1973 oil embargo, then he began to be recognized as an expert who had foreseen this, and people started saying, oh, you're like this prophet or this oracle who had foretold what is now occurring. And he said, you know, of course, I'm not an oracle. I'm not communicating with the gods. I'm a scientist. I was trying to tell you guys, based on evidence, why we were headed towards this kind of thing, but you guys weren't listening. Anyway, you're listening now, so I'll tell you more about where things are going. That was basically him in the 1970s. And he did get some interest from the Carter administration when they first started trying to have some kind of energy policy for the U.S. So Carter created the Department of Energy and had a Secretary of Energy in his cabinet, which was something that had never existed in the U.S. before that. People essentially took energy for granted. So that first energy secretary was James Lessinger, 
and he gave warnings about approaching peak of world oil production without putting an exact date on it, but, you know, it was something that we needed to worry about. He knew about Hubbard's forecasts, and when I interviewed him for my book, he actually told me that he had wanted to give Hubbard a national medal for his work to recognize that how Hubbard had highlighted these important long-term issues that the U.S. and the whole world were facing. But then Schlesinger was really arrogant. He was very abrasive and hard driving. So he had a lot of good qualities that he was trying to warn people about these things, but the way he went about it was not the best. He wound up getting fired by Carter (laughs) because he rubbed too many people the wrong way. And so he got fired before he was able to actually give Hubbard this national medal, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. So Hubbard was trying to help encourage formal planning around resources. Yeah. That was, something that was one of his objectives. And he became, actually well before the 1970s, involved in a movement called technocracy. Yeah. So tell us briefly what technocracy was about, when it started. So technocracy started in the depths of the Great Depression in the early 1930s. That was a group that Hubbard and an engineer named Howard Scott and a few other people um, who pulled together who thought that some kind of rational planning could help pull the country out of the Depression. And their particular view on this was that scientists and engineers could help direct the economy or plan the economy. And their reason was because they thought that the people who were in charge of running things, like setting policies in the government or setting monetary policies in the Federal Reserve and so on, these were not people who understood the industrial civilization that that existed at that time. The ideas were based on older ideas and that we needed people who understood how machines powered by fossil fuels had completely changed the possibilities for how you run an economy and how you live your life. Even at that time, there was a lot of mechanization and automation that was meaning that people did not have to labor as much and you could produce a huge amount of goods without so much time from people. And so working hours had been getting cut back and back from 80 hours a week to 40 hours a week, which is a huge difference. And they thought that this was a trend that would continue into the future. So they were, they were worried about a future you know, in which we're being dominated by our robot overlords. Well, and we wouldn't have any work to do. <laughs> sort of. I mean, what they were hoping was that everybody would come together to share the bounty from these machines so everyone could have plenty, have a decent life, and you wouldn't even have to work very much. Right. The number they came up with was 16 hours a week. Okay, so technocracy briefly was interested in taking an empirical, top-down planning approach to the economy. Yeah. And they were not particularly focused on limits to growth per se, or on resource limitations generally. They were more looking for an optimization, really. Yeah, they wanted to run the factories efficiently and so on. Right. Like one fascinating thing that they had was they said, 
everybody should share cars instead of owning their own car. And you go to this garage and you check out a car and then you... The sharing economy for vehicles. Yeah, it was Zipcar, like 100 years before. Right, (laughs) right, right. So, yeah, they had a bunch of things like this that they thought would help allow the economy to run more efficiently instead of the bounty of the machines just going to the owners and a few people becoming rich. They thought it could build a totally different kind of society where everyone could have a lot of leisure and right. study and so on. Okay, so that started in the in the 30s. Yeah. And then here we are, fast forward 40 years. And Hubbard, his views have gotten the attention of the Carter administration, gotten the views of the James Schlesinger. And by that point, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring had come out. Yeah. Right? So the the whole environmental movement was now in motion. And the the Club of Rome had published The Limits to Growth. And so there was, at least in intellectual circles, there was certainly a consciousness that there might be this whole limits to growth problem. Yeah. And Hubbard, how did he view that that school of thought? So he was a big proponent of the work that was being done at MIT that was the Limits to Growth Report and other things. Dennis Meadows and that whole team. Yeah. Dennis Meadows actually got a hold of Hubbard right before they published this Limits to Growth Report in early 1972. Before that, Dennis Meadows got a hold of Hubbard and said, a lot of our work was inspired by you. I wanted to see if you'd be interested in collaborating. And Hubbard said no, and I think the main reason was he was never very good at collaborating with anybody. <laughs> he didn't get along well with others. He, he really... did not get along with others. No. Well. No. But then over the years, he said many nice things about the limits to growth work. Like he wrote a long memo about it for the Secretary of Interior at that time to mm-hmm. say, these are important issues that we need to be looking at. And, you know, he had been saying similar things about that there were various kinds of, of resource limitations that would limit growth and that we should be trying to adjust our society to run things sustainably, which means that it could keep going that way for hundreds or thousands of years. He had been saying these kind of things for a couple of decades before the Limits to Growth report came out, but he wasn't bitter when it came out. He just said, this is great. People are paying more attention to this kind of thing. Well, what what was Hubbard's view of what a sustainable energy consumption looks like? What, what did he think? Like, he obviously recognized that oil would have limits. Yeah. So what did he think was going to come after that? Well, he recognized limits for oil, but also for coal and natural gas. And so when he first started thinking about this kind of thing, seriously, in the 1940s, he was looking for, you know, what is going to replace these? What's something that can actually last for a long time? And at that point, he thought it would be hydroelectric power because that was the big renewable energy source at that time. Yeah, in the 40s for sure. yeah. Yeah. And then several years later, after World War II, nuclear power came to the fore. And the first commercial nuclear power plant started up right before this famous 1956 talk that he gave. And he got pulled in by the National Academy of Sciences to be an advisor on nuclear waste disposal to help the Atomic Energy Commission, which was at that point in charge of promoting nuclear power in the U.S. and also regulating nuclear power in the U.S. 
So he and a small team of other scientists were supposed to advise them. So he learned a lot about nuclear power at that point, and he got very excited about it and said, essentially, this is the answer. We need to switch as much as we can over to nuclear power. But he said, we need to do it in this way where you use breeder reactors. So you use these reactors that turn uranium into plutonium, and it greatly increases the amount of energy that you can get out of a certain amount of uranium that you mine out of the ground. But that was not the way that the reactors were working at the time, and there's very little work done on trying to develop these breeder reactors. And then, as it turned out, Hubbard had been involved in doing official U.S. government estimates of how much uranium could be produced at an acceptable price to run a nuclear-based electricity system. Well, he he didn't make his own estimates for uranium resources. No, but he worked with a team that, that was working on that, that, that had been hired to figure out for the U.S. government what the future of these resources looked like. Yeah, so he was part of this National Academy of Sciences panel that was put together. It was at the request of John F. Kennedy when he was president and to assess the nation's resources. And this was all kinds of resources, but they chose Hubbard to be in charge of energy resources, and then he tapped all the top experts that he could find on particular things, like he took oil himself, but then he had an expert for solar and an expert for coal and an expert for uranium, who was this U.S. Geological Survey expert who wound up becoming his nemesis in later years. But that's another story. So Hubbard was exposed at that point to some of the best information that you could get your hands on, that anybody could get their hands on. Yeah about the state of all these technologies. And yeah. he became aware of the nuclear waste handling problem. And it started to sour him on the prospect of, of nuclear power. Yeah. So essentially he thought nuclear is a great technology, but people can't be trusted with it. You know, some people might handle it well, but as a whole, the way that it developed, it was difficult to do it well. And he really did not like the Atomic Energy Commission, but that was a weird organization that was built to promote and regulate the nuclear industry. A which, fox guarding the hen house, classic situation. Yeah, it's right. like, I don't know who thought of that, but it was not a good idea. <laughs> okay. But, you know, they they persisted with that for years. They were started up right after World War II, and it only got kind of dismantled and changed into something else in the mid-70s, if I remember right. Okay. So he he and the others on this National Academy of Sciences panel on nuclear waste were trying to bring attention to these the way that nuclear waste was getting handled. I mean, people were doing crazy things like just putting waste in cardboard boxes that were sitting out like in this kind of deserty area in Hanford, Washington. And then when questioned about this, the people in charge said, well, it doesn't get much rainfall, so we, there's not much water, so it won't carry the, the radioactive stuff very far. It might get into the ground somewhat, but it'll probably stick to the dirt, and it won't get into the groundwater, so there's nothing to worry about. So massive irresponsibility in the handling of the nuclear waste at the Hanford site. Yeah, and not and just Hubbard, Hanford. And Hubbard saw this and was aware of it. Yeah, so then... At the same time he had been following solar power, 
you know, going to different conferences and talking with experts in that area. And he saw that there were big leaps being made in solar power. And this was solar concentrating power where you have a bunch of mirrors that reflect light to generate heat and drive a turbine, but also photovoltaic power where you generate electricity directly. And so at the same time he was souring on nuclear power, he was getting more excited about solar. And so right at the time of the OPEC embargo in 1973, then he had this lecture tour that he was put on by the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. So this is like essentially the oil industry (laughs) sending him out on a lecture tour. And he said, we need to switch over to solar power as much as we can. And this was when? This was in 1973 and early 1974. So he was very forthright in saying, I used to think nuclear was the, the answer. But he said, now I've become really afraid of it. You know, there's these issues with nuclear waste. There are issues about nuclear proliferation where people might get bombs. There are issues where people might, you know, run in and hijack a nuclear plant and then, like, make it melt down. Or, you know, there's a variety of, of issues. And he was worried about the environmental impact from these. And he just thought it's not a good technology. Like, just too dangerous for humans. Yeah. And solar power is safe, and we should go with solar. So that was yeah. circa 1973. Yeah. Okay. So this raises a really interesting point. It, it sounds like, in a lot of ways, Hubbard was, was basically taking the point of view that we should be practical and pragmatic. We should be driven by data. We should try to design our economy around the best information that we have around data and so on. And that in reality, he was opposed by people who either stood to benefit from the industry in one fashion or another and had to put down this sort of story of limitations that he had, or who really just sort of fundamentally didn't like the idea of there being any sort of top-down planning, that we should just take a laissez-faire approach to everything. Yeah. And now in modern times, I think that same debate has actually morphed into this. It's, it's almost a kabuki theater about are you a cornucopian or are you a Malthusian? Like it's the same debate that we're having today that we had back then. Yeah. Only now it's about do you believe in an endless future of abundance in resources or do you believe that there are limits? Right. So people, you know, invoke these words like technology and price, and then either you believe that those are going to enable growth forever, or you question that. And that seems to be (laughs) about the extent of it. But if you're data-driven, if you're taking the side of the debate as it was in Hubbard's time, yeah then you have to be persuaded by the data. You have to be persuaded by what, what do we know? What are the facts? which automatically means that you're part of the questioning tribe. Like, you don't just sort of believe a priori that there will always be more resources at an acceptable price. That automatically puts you in the skeptic tribe, which automatically makes you a Malthusian, which automatically means that we shouldn't listen to anything that you have to say because you don't believe. You don't believe as we do. You don't believe that humanity will always find a more 
abundant or cheaper or fungible substitution. Right. So, yeah, it's really this kind of mythology or worldview that has built up. And if you question that at all, then you wind up being pushed to the fringe. So Right. So if I believe that it would be best to run an economy based on whatever we know, the best information about what what the extent of our resources is, what it will take to produce them, how we can run an economy on them, etc. And that automatically makes me a Malthusian. Yeah, and a lot of people's and, views. <laughs> well, people on the other side of it would characterize me that way just as a straw man, to just say, oh, well, you know, this guy in Elder, he, he just doesn't believe. Or worse, he wants to see the U.S. fail, or he wants to see humanity collapse, right? Well, of course, I don't want to see that. Right. I'm just saying there's a very real possibility that there might be a limit to what we know are actually, in truth, finite resources, and that we should try to think about how we want to deal with that reality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could do, like put a lot more effort into research and development so that it will lead to things that could be useful in 10 years or 20 years. But there's a long lead time on those. And so... Well, besides that, I think as far as the argument goes that Hubbard was engaged in, can you plan an economy top down or do you have to just take a laissez-faire approach to things and whatever, whatever, let markets decide, right? Yeah. I think we've taken the latter point, you know, we've taken the latter path. Like we're, we're letting the markets decide. We're not even trying, we haven't had a coherent energy policy in this country since the seventies. We're clearly not trying to plan anything. Yeah. Or not in any coherent way. You know, there's little things that we do where it's not completely free market, you know, like there have been tariffs on imported oil. There's research that the government funds in order to try to shape what will come next. There's help for the nuclear industry that they gave it when it was getting going. There's the help now for solar and wind industries with feed-in tariffs and other kinds of, of support. But it's all just kind of scattered and you know, it's on one year and off the next year, and nobody knows how long it's going to last, and it's not any part of any coherent strategy. So, Hubbard, back in the 30s, he was a proponent of centralized planning of things. He changed his views over time. I think a lot of other people did the same. You know, at the time when he was involved with technocracy, then one of the best-selling books recently was this little summary of the new Soviet Union's five-year plan where they were using centralized planning. And people weren't just buying this book in the U.S. because they wanted to shout it down. They were interested in this idea of planning. And a lot of people in the U.S. were proponents of some degree of planning in order to try to pull the, the country out of the Depression. And of course, Roosevelt didn't just leave it up to the market to get out of the Depression. He undertook massive government spending projects to put people to work, and you know a number of other things that were affecting how the market was worked. But that kind of thing has almost become taboo now. Like if Roosevelt was around during the 2008 recession and was proposing some of the things that he was proposing, I don't think they would go over. But at the time, they were a huge hit. 
his administration proposed these things, and they just flew through Congress with essentially no debate because everybody was so worried and thought, this sounds like a good idea, let's try this. And so looking at that difference between how his Roosevelt's proposals were greeted at that point and the way the discussion is now, it's kind of depressing because things have shifted so much against any kind of planning. It's like the only kind of real planning that we have anymore is in the Federal Reserve, where they're supposed to adjust interest rates to, to kind of tweak how the economy is running, to like speed it up or slow it down a little bit. To do yeah, but even, even that is really very short term. I mean, it's, it's very it's, short term. It's nothing that's going to look out 30 years into the future and say, well, this is where we want to be and this is what we should try to do to get there. Yeah, and it's also all based on an idea that we just got to keep growth going as much as we can. Right. We've had such an amazing run in oil for the last 10 years, especially. Conventional oil peaked in 2006. We had the fracking revolution that happened after that, increased the all liquids amount. We've had this massive volatility in prices where, you know, oil went from $40 a barrel to almost 150 and then back down to 30 and then back over 100 and now it's back down to 30. It's just this massive volatility in price that seems to have very little relationship to the actual fluctuation in demand and supply, right. first of all. And we've had just a, a massive uh, revolution in the way that oil is produced and gas. We've, we've had the fracking revolution and we've had um, a real shift, a very strong shift worldwide away from big capital intensive projects like deep water to kind of these smaller projects. So now we're in an era of low prices. Now we've got, well, for most of this year so far, oil has been around $30 a barrel. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that think that this is just further proof that the idea of peak oil was wrong. Right. Because prices are low. Yeah. So let's just talk about that for a minute. I mean, as, as I've just pointed out, there's actually very little relationship between supply, demand, or even spare capacity and price over time over time each individual factor that could affect the price of oil has its moment we have moments where spare capacity is really driving the trade or where geopolitical concerns are really driving the trade or where an excess in supply or an excess in demand is really driving the trade but it's not always one thing and it's changing all the time as to sort of what's the major risk that the oil market is responding to today so if you look at it over time, there's, very, there's a very low correlation between oil prices and any particular fundamental measures of the, of the oil trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so a lot of the people who argue that the low prices prove that those peak oil worries were stupid and wrong and not something we don't need to worry about anymore, when people bring up those kind of arguments, they usually cite a few people who did say that the price of oil was going to keep going up and up pretty much indefinitely, like this Canadian economist Jeff Rubin, who said the price would go up to about $200 a barrel, or Goldman Sachs analysts who said it would go up to $200 a barrel, or Matthew Simmons, this oil financer, who said it would go up to $300 a barrel. And it's true that people did say those kind of things, but I think it's important to realize that it could have actually gone up to $200 a barrel. It wasn't a totally crazy idea. 
I said that myself back in 2007. <laughs> but it was all, it's all part of this extreme volatility that you get when things are not going very well, where nobody expected it to get up to $150 a barrel. And mainstream forecasters like the International Energy Agency or Daniel Jurgen's firm, Sarah, were all saying as the price was going up during the 2000s, like, it's got to come back down. This is not reasonable. It's not sustainable. And they were right in a sense because those high oil prices were a break on the economy. So because of this feedback, it can't go up and just stay really, really high forever or just keep going up and up and up. But then saying exactly where this break point is going to come and where it's going to crash the economy and then you flip into this other mode of cheap oil for a while, that's really hard to predict. If you could predict that, you'd become a billionaire like overnight. But <laughs> so far, it doesn't seem like anybody's been able to do that consistently. No, I don't think anyone's had a, a good forecasting track record, especially over the last 10 years. I mean, so, I, I would have to say that the PICAS did a better job of forecasting price than, you know, your classic cornucopians did. Obviously, the folks who were talking about peak oil on the oil drum in 2005 absolutely saw the possibility that oil could soar from $40 a barrel at the time to $150 a barrel some years down the line. And that that would be driven by a necessary transition from this cheap conventional oil to expensive unconventional oil. That was kind of the theory as I understood it at the time. Whereas the cornucopians, guys like Daniel Jurgen, were saying that the long-term price of oil was going to be $38 a barrel and that this, this, this spike in prices was going to be very short-term and we go right back down to the 30s and 40s because that's what oil production should cost. Yeah. Okay, so I would say that on the whole, the PICAS did a better job of anticipating what oil prices actually did. Yeah, and I think they were also right in highlighting the feedback between the price of oil and the state of the economy. Not yeah. all of them. Like, some True. of them did not really talk about that. But some of them did, but it wasn't really a part of the discussion for the most part, which is weird because in years past, it seemed to be relatively well accepted that high oil prices would cause a recession. Like, people had lived through that in 1973, and they lived yeah. through it again in 1979. Yeah. And then somehow during that era of cheap oil from the mid-80s through the late 90s, that idea evaporated, and I don't really understand why. But now it's like almost sort of a weird idea to say that high oil prices are a break on the economy and that they could trigger a recession. And there was the, the worst recession in decades in 2008, right at the same time when there were the worst oil prices ever. So people had generally forgotten or disregarded this idea that the price of oil could affect the state of the global economy, how fast it was growing or whether it went into a recession. And so then we had the worst recession or depression in decades at the same time that the price of oil reached this all-time high. And I think that's not a coincidence but there wasn't very much discussion about the role that high oil prices might have played in triggering this collapse of the economy, which to me 
was bizarre. I was not paying attention to these things at the time. I was covering climate science and I wasn't really aware of peak oil or paying attention to the price of oil. I didn't have a car. <laughs> so, but then looking back in retrospect, I'm like, why were people not talking about this at the time? All they were talking about was the housing market and derivatives and so on. But those exist in the larger context of an economy that actually consumes material things and is not just driven by traders and people who are guessing how much a house is worth. And it's often said that oil is the master commodity. So yeah. as oil prices go up and down, it affects the prices of everything else. Yeah. I mean, people have kind of taken oil for granted, at least in the U.S. and other developed countries. But it's still the number one source of energy in the whole world. Right. And it's hard to substitute for. So it makes it have a unique place. So let's talk about the prospect of peak oil today. I mean, even though prices are low right now so that people who never understood that peak oil wasn't about price are still confused and still out there saying, oh, prices are low, therefore peak oil is dumb. But putting that aside, understanding as we do that price is not a good indication of whether production is going to go up or down tomorrow, let's talk about peak oil and its real prospect today. Okay. So I think there's a very good chance that the world oil production will have peaked in 2015. Now, we've already discussed the fact that conventional oil as strictly construed, okay, so crude oil, and I think you would include I think condensate. They, yeah, I mean, I'm using the definition from the International Energy Agency, and they are including condensates in that. Right, yeah. okay, so on a crude plus condensate basis, the world already peaked in 2006. Yeah. In the, the way the IEA counts it. Yeah. And EIA doesn't count it the same way, and you can't actually come up with the same number using EIA data that you can get when you use IEA data. Right. Okay. But I think, I think it's very likely that 2015 will have been the all-liquids peak, including all the unconventional stuff, including tide oil, including biofuels, etc. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance of that. Yeah, I think that's plausible. Okay. So let's talk about why that might have happened. I mean, everyone knows that the U.S. shale revolution has brought about an additional 4 million barrels a day, or at least did at its peak. Or even five. I think it was just about five for was monthly. It? For an On annual, a monthly basis. On an annual average, it would be a bit lower, more like four and a half. Four and a half, yeah. Okay. So if the world got an additional four and a half million barrels a day from tide oil, and that now goes into decline... Well, first of all, what evidence do we have that it might have gone into decline? And second, what is the potential fallout from it going into decline? So you have, for quite a while now, had a little side project called the Frack Lab. It's on Beacon? Yeah. Right. Where you ask people to contribute a small monthly amount. I'm a proud contributor. Thank you. <laughs> to get access to your own private data work on fracking. So what has that work told you most recently about the state of U.S. tidal oil production? So the production is definitely dropping. Even the standard headline numbers from the Energy Information Administration show that the production from tight oil is falling. So to, just to put some numbers on that, I think U.S. production was at 
9.7 in April. And we're down to about 9.2 million barrels a day now. Yeah, it's dropped by around half a million barrels a day. Or, Total U.S. production. Yeah, which has been and, more than 5%. And it's assumed that most of that was tight oil. Yeah, well, it's not just assumed, but it is pretty much all tight oil dropping. Okay. So what does your latest data munging tell you about where this is likely to go? Well, it's going to keep going down. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It's because companies have been gradually cutting back how much they're drilling, how many new wells they're adding that are producing. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the cutting of CapEx across the upstream yeah. industry. Yeah. So they didn't just do it all at once. You know, they were reluctant to do this. And at the same time they've been cutting back, the price of oil has been so low, they've been actually losing money, a lot of them, or almost all of them. So they need to keep cutting back if the price of oil is going to stay where it is, or even if it goes up a bit, maybe $50 a barrel, they might still need to cut back from what they've already done. So just recently we heard that two of the biggest drillers in the Bakken, you know, which is one of the big three tight oil plays in the country, that they're going to not add any new producing wells in all of 2016. Right. I believe it was that they're going to continue to drill, but not frack. Right. Not complete. Right. Because if they start selling barrels, these are just, you know, barrels that they're losing money on every single one that they sell. And we're talking here about Continental and Whiting. Yeah. And EOG also has said that it will not frack so many wells and not have them start producing, but they didn't say that they're going to just stop that completely for the whole year in the Bakken. So the way things have been going, where it's already dropping, where it seems like they're going to have to cut back their capital expenditure more, and they're going to have to deal with the debt that they've built up, and a lot of times increase the debt since the price of oil dropped because they were trying to maintain things and not have to cut back too drastically if they didn't want to. All of these point towards shale oil production continuing to drop. So, Okay, so if U.S. shale oil production is going to continue to drop, I mean, how, how, well, how far do we think it could drop? Do you have well, any idea of that? It all depends how long the prices stay low. Right. So it could drop to, you know, down to, say, a million barrels a day within five years say again the production could follow more or less a symmetric kind of curve where the production drops off almost as quickly as it rose so that in maybe five years or so you would be down to something pretty low like a million barrels a day from tight oil from tight oil okay so on top of the conventional yeah which would put us where five and a half million barrels a day Total production, yes. Yeah, so the the other stuff in the U.S. is around 5 million barrels a day, and it seems to be holding there. So the whole U.S. might wind up around 6 million barrels a day. Around 6, okay. But this would be a huge turnaround from what had been happening and a huge change from what had been expected, where people thought that the total production for the U.S. would continue going up, at least until the early 2020s, and that it would surpass the earlier peak that Hubbard is known for predicting, and essentially that we'd be in this totally different situation that turned 
the whole picture around for the U.S. So if you look at the amount of growth that we got in world oil supply since like 2007, it was basically equivalent to the additional growth from U.S. tight oil. Yeah. So if you took away the U.S. tight oil phenomenon, the world would have been flat since like 2006. Yeah, well, tar sands and the tide oil, these two right. big unconventional sources were responsible for all the growth, and the rest of oil was basically flat. Right, so if we take away that phenomenon now, if tide oil is going back down, and it's you know headed toward a million barrels a day, or maybe even less eventually, then does that sort of automatically mean that the world is going to have peaked as well? It could well, because with this low price of oil, it's not only hurting tight oil and tar sands. It's also meaning that companies are cutting their investment in all sorts of oil production, like offshore fields all around the world. And so there's this relentless depletion of existing fields that companies always have to try to overcome just to hold the production of conventional oil flat. And so far over the last decade, they've pretty much balanced that where it's pretty much stayed flat. And, you know, I think a lot of times when people look at that, they just kind of think, oh, nothing's really happening. But actually under the hood, they're having to find a lot of oil, develop it, bring it to market just to hold production flat. Because the background depletion rate is about 4 million barrels a day for the world. Yeah, so from the existing fields, it's dropping off like that. So you have to keep adding. You new have to add 4 million barrels a day of new production every year to stay flat. Yeah, and so the way that the, the head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Birol, the way he put it was that by the 2030s, we'd have to add about four new Saudi Arabias. Right. Which and Saudi Arabia is producing around 10 million barrels a day, one of the biggest producers, along with Russia, and then more recently the U.S. So that is a lot of oil. And he was trying to highlight how this is a major challenge, and we shouldn't just assume that it's going to all work out. Right. And so he was saying that, and in fact, people responded to it, only instead of finding four new Saudi Arabias, we found that it was possible to produce 5 million barrels a day, let's say, of tight oil at very high prices when oil was, you know, three digits. And that we were able to produce more from tar sands. And there was, in fact, some additional expenditure in, in deep water and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and in fact, all of the actual production growth, I would say, over the last year or so probably came from deep water. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I haven't looked at deep water that closely. But... Okay, so... If the U.S., in fact, has peaked, and again, you've done some really interesting detailed work on this in the Frack Lab, which I think people ought to have a look at, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But, Thanks. But if the U.S. has, in fact, peaked in 2015, then that probably means the world has, too. Yeah, and I think it's because of what's happening in the U.S., where it's a, such a big producer, but it's also because of how oil prices are affecting the investment around the world. And so what's happening in the U.S. is just a sign of what is happening in a lot of other places as well. So this will be actually the second U.S. production peak. Yeah. A little bit lower than the 1970s peak, actually. Yeah, a little bit lower. So 
at least we can still talk about the all-time peak being in 1970. I got a little bit worried there for a bit, where I was like, oh, this is going to get complicated to talk about if it surpasses the earlier peak. Right. But in fact, it, it'll probably be just slightly shy of that. Yeah. On an annual basis anyway. Yeah. Okay. So what is, in fact, your outlook now for future production? Like, if you were to make a Hubbard-like model today, what would it look like? I haven't built a model, but just my intuitive sense of how things might go. Just as we've seen a plateau of conventional oil over the last decade, and now we're in this situation where there hasn't, you know, the price of oil is low and there's not enough investment going in, and so we might see a decline of conventional oil. I think we might see the same kind of thing with total liquids production over the next decade. So maybe from 2015 to 2025, we'd be on a plateau for total liquids production. Not precisely plateau, but more or less. Around, what, 95 million barrels a day, all liquids? I think that's what it's at now. Yeah, more or less. Would you see it all kind of holding steady, for example? Like conventional C plus C, crude plus condensate, staying around 70 million barrels a day and in the IEA's definition, less tight oil, less oil sands, and then like 95 million barrels a day, all liquids. Yes. Or, or do you think that over the next 10 years, maybe you would have actually a decline of the C plus C and an increase in like NGLs and more unconventionals to keep the total around 95? Well, like I've been reading the International Energy Agency's reports on this and their attempts to forecast in light of the oil price drop. And it seems like they've got some good arguments about how things might play out. And they're expecting that with the low oil price that there'll be some more production than they had thought from some of the places like Saudi Arabia where it's relatively cheap to extract. And then there would be less from deep water and less from tar sands and tight oil and things like that. But they still don't expect any uh, rebound of, of conventional oil to go above the peak that it reached in 2006. So I think conventional oil might kind of sputter along on its plateau that it's been on for a decade, but it's not going to go above that. And for the total liquids, then... Uh, Tide oils and tar sands are definitely not looking great unless there's a price rebound. But things like natural gas liquids might rise somewhat, but basically I could foresee a more or less continuation of the plateau of conventional oil and a flatlining of all the rest of the liquid supplies for another 5 to 10 years. Okay, so... What are the possible implications of having actually peaked in conventional supply? Like, what does that mean for what happens next? It means if we want to start consuming more, the price of oil has to go up. So we're not going to have, you know, high growth of consumption and cheap oil ever again. That's what I think. We could have cheap oil if the world economy is not doing well for a long time. Or we could have high economic growth and have consumption growing again, but I think the price will rebound. And then the question is, at what point does the price of oil get high enough to start 
acting as a brake on the economy again. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone inside and outside the industry would agree that eventually you have to get back to a profitable price in oil yeah. for <laughs> for production and it's, drilling to continue. And we, yeah. we haven't been there for probably the better part of a year now. Um, yeah. And so we, we do have to get back to... Well, I guess opinions differ on what price we need to get back to to see production bounce back. But I'm still holding to roughly $80 a barrel worldwide for your typical marginal production. I mean, certainly there are U.S. tidal oil producers that would bounce back at 40 or $50 a barrel if they had a good horizon on that, you know, good visibility on that price for at least a year forward, such that they could go raise some more capital, some more debt to pursue that drilling program. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing that makes it difficult to forecast what's going to happen on like a five-year scale or less is things like how willing the markets will be to extend debt to companies that are have been losing money. Or, you know, what is the Federal Reserve and other central banks going to do with quantitative easing and things like that that can help juice the economy for a bit, but won't be a long-term solution that will keep things going for decades. Yeah, well, certainly there are a lot of us who don't think that it can do much more at this point. It's kind of played out. So if if your forecast is, I don't know if you want to call it a forecast, but if your hand-wavy model for the next 10 years that is, sounds good. is roughly stable production, then prices have to come back up during that period. I mean, they have to they have to work their way back to like $70, $80 a barrel. And then that production would be flat, you think, maybe for another 10 years. Yeah, to, to hold production flat, yeah, you would need to have some kind of rebound of price, I think. But whether it's going to get back up to $100 a barrel or not, I don't know. Well, you can't guess and unless you have an idea of what your demand is going to be, right? So yeah. if we if we truly peaked in supply in 2015 and we've got basically an overhang of supply right now relative to demand and everybody knows that we're kind of waiting to work through well estimates differ but what let's say two million barrels some would say three million barrels a day of excess supply right now okay take us two years to work through that let's say and then we continue on down let's say we're the background depletion rate is four million barrels a day and we're adding what, a million barrels a day or something like that? 2017, late 2017, 2018, 2019, we could easily find ourselves right back at $100 a barrel before 2020. Yeah, I think it's totally plausible. Because it takes those higher prices to stimulate this new unconventional production. Yeah, it takes those higher prices and the price swings really rapidly compared with what people seem to expect normally. Like when you look at these long-term reports, they show the price gradually rising over time. But then when you look at what actually happens, it like shoots way up and then crashes and then shoots back up again. So yeah. And we know that it's very likely that prices will have that kind of volatility over the next couple of years. So there's no reason to think that, that it wouldn't be, let's put it that way. Yeah. Like right before the oil price crash, in 2014, then, you know, the BP CEO was saying $100 a barrel seems to be the new $20 a barrel. Right. And then that wasn't right. And then now people are talking about oh, $40 a barrel or something like that is the new normal. But this whole idea that there's some kind of normal price that's just going to stay at for a while is not... No, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, and everybody knows that, that the reason why tight oil has hung on... Well, well there are several reasons. 
why tide oil production has hung on in this low price environment. But part of it is the so-called high grading, where they've really focused their drilling and their, their new production operations onto the so-called sweet spots, where they know the wells can be very productive. Yeah. As we get another couple years down the line here, those sweet spots are going to be exhausted or at least saturated in terms of their ability to sink new wells in them. Yeah. They'll reach the point where there will be communication between the laterals and it just doesn't make any sense to keep drilling anymore. I mean, you're going to you're going to invest more money to drain the same amount of oil ultimately. So it doesn't make any sense to keep drilling at that point. Yeah. Even that effect of high grading is over estimated or overhyped a lot of times i think like i've done right analysis to look at the difference between before the oil price crash and then after that and in the frack lab you've done yeah, this. yeah yeah well i'm not sure i've actually posted that stuff but okay. <laughs> i've been doing it and i mean i'm not the only one doing it eia right. has some numbers up too and they agree with mine and it shows that in 2015 after the price crash when they had every incentive to try to drill only in the best spots the amount that they were getting out per well in a place like the Bakken, it was only going up maybe 10%. It's not like they were doubling how much they got per well. So it helps, but it's not enough to make it profitable at $40 a barrel. And it comes at an additional expense, for sure. So as we get down the line and we've reached the saturation point in the sweet spots, that means that two, three years from now, Whatever the best price is that's touted today as the price that brings U.S. tight oil back, let's say it's $40 a barrel, let's say that everybody believes today that at $40 a barrel, U.S. tight oil operations will be putting rigs back to work, putting people back to work, all right? Mm -hmm. Three years from now, it's not going to be $40 anymore. Yeah. It's going to be back at 50 It's going to be back at 60 because we'll exhausted the sweet spots and we'll be down to the less prospective areas on the periphery of the sweet spots. Yeah, and especially if we try to ramp things back up again. So right, that we're if we try to hit a new peak. Drilling really rapidly, then that's really going to exhaust these sweet spots quickly. And suddenly we're going to be in this position where we're trying to rely on these more marginal areas to try to keep production increasing. Okay, so your perspective is clearly one that we're going to have maybe... A plateau of production for another 10 years with a continued volatility of price. Yeah. And that potentially we will have actually peaked in 2015. Yeah. Or thereabouts. Yeah. Maybe plus or minus a year. I don't know. Do you think at that point that people will finally understand that peak oil is not about price? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 10 years now we've been talking about this. I mean, how much ink, virtual ink, has been spilled talking about what peak oil is and what it isn't? And I swear, like, people just still think it's about price. Like, that. I don't think anybody ever really got the fact that it was about a production curve. Yeah, it's so funny. It's The idea is really simple. It's, you know, how many barrels are we pulling out of the ground every year? And or as Colin Campbell put it, how year? fast are you drinking that beer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't hold out great hope about large numbers of people coming to a new realization about peak oil. And even the people who are more sophisticated can often have ideologies about these things where they might say, sure, oil production has been falling in the last five years, 
But as soon as oil prices come back and there's a bit of takes a little bit of time for those to have their effect and for the capital expenditure to to materialize, but then, you know, eventually production will keep going up and it seems like there are a lot of influential people who have this kind of eternal hope that is not really directly based on any particular data that they can point to, but more just a general idea that innovation and and some increase in price will bring forth more production. That, Which is basically back to proclaiming your faith is what it is. There's yeah. nothing empirical about that. And it's not a matter of data. It's just, I believe that we'll do it. I believe yeah. in technology, etc. Yeah. Okay, so what what realistically could we count on to maintain supply for the next couple of years, especially if U.S. tight oil is, is going into decline? I think we can lump in Canadian oil, oil sands with that because CapEx is drying up there too. Mm-hmm. So who else is there? I mean, is there anybody else in non-OPEC or are we basically counting on OPEC to provide all the new supply at this point to overcome that background depletion rate? Yeah, it's pretty much OPEC that would need to raise production. So, you know, people are thinking that Iran, now that sanctions that are being lifted, will increase some. Iran will increase some. Maybe Saudi Arabia will increase some. I think it clearly will some. I mean, I think that widely broadcast or repeated assertion of theirs that they're going to bring on a half a million barrels a day of new production within 30 days of the sanctions being lifted. I think that was a little optimistic. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the other countries like Kuwait is hoping to boost their production and Qatar has been increasing theirs a fair amount and hopes mm. to continue increasing it. So there are possibilities there, but it, it depends a lot on what, how those countries handle it politically because they are drawing down their reserves of money and they had uh, built their societies around $100 barrel of oil providing a lot of services for people there and if they can't do that anymore and have to take more of the revenue that they're getting to invest in you know boosting their production and uh, having to cut back their services people in those countries might get unhappy about that and uh, <laughs> so. well I mean okay so just just to be clear about this we're we're envisioning a scenario in which Prices creep back up to seventy, maybe eighty dollars a barrel, maybe even higher. Okay, yeah. Over the next couple of years. Yeah. And that's the point at which we're really counting on OPEC to provide the, the new supply. Yeah. So they and some more conventional projects would be able to break even at those kind of prices, and some small, smaller amounts of tight oil, and tar sands would probably be able to break even at those kind of prices as well, and so they could help maintain this kind of plateau that I'm talking about even if they weren't able to boost production up to much higher than it had been. Right. So so how far do you think that'll take us? I mean, let's let's try to put a stake in the ground here. I mean, hmm. uh, <laughs> let's say we could get back to I don't know, a sustained $100 a barrel. Uh-huh. How would everyone respond? And how far could we go in terms of raising the world production level again and for how long I mean what do you think that's a hard one but I think 
if people in the U.S. get really excited about this and they start pumping a whole bunch of money into the tide oil companies the way that they did before, then we could get another big boom that is... How that, big? That, For how long? Uh, I mean, there's, there's you know... <laughs> We talked about a 4 million barrel a day decline rate for the world's mature fields. Mm-hmm. For the U.S., we're talking tight oil fields. Yeah. Tight oil wells deplete much more quickly than that. They deplete, you know, 65% in the first two years. Yeah. So I did a little bit of, you know, modeling on this for tight oil, and it's not like some kind of grand model of the economy and everything, but it's just saying, what if the number of wells that you were adding dropped down for a while, for a year, maybe through the end of 2017, and then prices came back up, and then you you ramped back up to where you were adding as many new wells as you were before the oil price crash. And you could get another peak of U.S. oil production that was higher than it had been before, and that was higher than the earlier peak in 1970. So it's definitely possible the big question is, are there enough good places to drill, like you were talking about with these sweet spots that can get saturated? You know, are there enough good spots at, at whatever price of oil we're at? And how is the world economy doing? All right, let me put it this way. Under any reasonable assumptions about economic growth, what people can afford to pay for fuel, the prospects for drilling going forward, what we actually think demand is going to be. Do you see any prospect of, for example, extending the the peak out past, say, 2020? I'd say it's, it's low chance. Low chance. What about 2025? Lower. Lower. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean... I mean, I'm just trying to bracket the, the world here. What are, what are the possibilities? Yeah, I mean, pl- people like IEA and Daniel Jurgen talk about a peak more or less in the late 2030s, 2040. And I think... And should we mention just here real quick that, that Jurgen, once upon a time, was a peakist? Yeah, that's one of the funny things that I came across in my book and that it doesn't seem like many people talk about even though he's widely quoted. All he did was just go back and read these op-eds that he written for the New York Times and LA Times and so on over the years, mostly from the late 70s, early 80s. And he was a real pessimist about the future of oil at that point, saying we're going to have a third oil shock in the 80s, it's going to undermine economies, and it could be like another Great Depression again, and, and these kind of things. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if people realize it, but in the mishmash of quotes that introduces this show and as our theme, there's Daniel Jurgen saying, you know, there's not very much time for us to start figuring out a new solution to to depleting oil. Yeah. I that think, was from the 1970s. Yeah, and I think uh, there are a lot of people like him who got worried about these things at the time, and then it didn't play out exactly as he expected, where the oil prices crashed in the mid-80s instead of staying high or continuing to go up. Prices crashed and he lost his faith. <laughs> yeah, and so then he's become this this big optimist about things. Do you think he really has changed his mind about the about the real potential for the industry and, and the future prospects for production, or do you think... 
He's just following the trends. I mean, I don't know, but it it definitely seems like he is kind of amplifying whatever it is that people are saying at the time. Mm -hmm. Like, even after he became an optimist about oil supplies, then there were these worries in the mid-2000s about U.S. natural gas production. And he went before, Daniel Jurgen went before Congress and said, I think U.S. natural gas production is in permanent decline. And then a couple of years later, the shale revolution had started to unfold, and he became one of the biggest touters of this, saying, calling it the shale gale and talking about how amazing this was. Right. But he wasn't talking about that before it happened. He wasn't forecasting that it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it'd be sort of hard to show that, he, that there's really been any real intellectual consistency there. Yeah. And he's kind uh, of been on every side of the issue. Yeah, he's good at explaining in a catchy way what has just recently happened. <laughs> that is a skill. <laughs> that is a skill. And and you said he actually had a, a background, as, a, basically, as a storyteller. Well, yeah, I mean, he got his, his doctorate in, uh, if I remember right, it was in narrative history. So he's not a geologist. He's not a... He had nowhere near the kind of technical knowledge that, like, an M. King Hubbard had. Yeah, so he, yeah, his focus in his doctorate was on international relations between the U.S. and Soviet Union, and he wrote a book about that. And then after he was done with that, in 1970, in the late 1970s, he got interested in oil when the prices had already shot way up, and there was a lot of interest in that. And so he was at Harvard Business School and started making forecasts for oil and so on. So looking forward then, since it seems very likely that we will have probably seen the peak, or at least the, the beginning of decline, I should say, for, for world oil production and for U.S. production mm -hmm. around now, and that there's a lot more energy now actually around the whole question of energy transition. People are more excited about it. People are seeing the possibilities. People are really beginning to model it. They're, they're starting to talk about new rate designs. They're talking about new business models for utilities. They're talking about new uh, forecasts for electric vehicles, for example. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me, and I think you would agree, that short of a big revolution in, in switching to rail, which I personally still think is the best idea, okay. we're going to move toward electric vehicles. Yeah. And that electric vehicles might actually give us a way out of the peak oil problem. And, and I think the, the most recent pronouncement on that is some modeling done by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Mm -hmm. So what did you see when you looked at their model? Well, they're saying that uh, maybe oil production and oil consumption will drop off in the future because we'll be switching en masse over to electric vehicles, so we just don't need as much oil. We don't want as much oil. And this writer for Bloomberg who was building on this report was saying maybe electric vehicles could even create this new crisis for the oil industry where prices remain low for a long time and they don't have enough to invest in, in boosting production and their profits are hurt. So in its most recent forecast or model, BNEF offered a couple different outlooks for the sales of EVs. And one of them, the high-profile sort of headline scenario, was that EV growth, sales growth, continues at a 60% compound annual growth rate. So 
a very high annual growth rate. Yeah. And by 2023, EVs are then able to displace 2 million barrels a day of oil demand, which is enough to bring the oil market sort of back into balance. But they're actually saying that it could be enough to keep oil prices depressed and cause another oil crash. Yeah. And then they've got a couple of other scenarios here where they're saying, well, for example, at a 30% annual growth rate, then EVs are actually displacing 1 million barrels a day by like 2030. And then there's this sort of very high case where you've got EVs representing a quarter of all car sales by 2040. And you've actually displaced 13 million barrels a day of crude. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the way they're approaching EVs. Do you think that those are even realistic numbers? Like, do you do you really see us keeping a 60% annual growth rate for EV sales? That seems difficult to imagine unless we have some kind of concerted effort to make it happen, that it's not going to just happen through market forces alone. Okay, why do you think that? It would depend on electric vehicles being more attractive than conventional ones for people around the world. So not just in markets where there's a high tax on gasoline like in Europe, but in markets like China and India. And it would rely on uh, battery prices coming down a lot and a very strong rollout over an extended period of time. And it would probably uh, require high oil prices. It would require that additional incentive of having it be considerably cheaper to drive an EV. Yeah, it seems to me that it would. I mean, they looked in this report at various oil price scenarios, but and I have yet to dig into all the details, but in general, higher oil prices would make it a lot easier to make a transition like this. Well, I think, you know, at least according to this one article, their central forecast, which I take it would be the 45% annual growth forecast. So by that point, you've got 2 million barrels a day of oil demand displaced by 2025. Mm -hmm. That forecast assumes the oil price recovering to $50 and then trending back up to $70 a barrel Mm -hmm. or higher by 2040. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to say that if oil prices were to fall to 20 and stay there, that it would only delay mass adoption of EVs to the early 2030s. Yeah, I... (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't sound that plausible to me. Well, first of all, it doesn't sound plausible to me that you could have oil drop to $20 a barrel and stay there yeah. for all the reasons we've just discussed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got these background de- uh, decline rates to overcome. Mm-hmm. You've got a diminishing resource out there that you're trying to produce from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the marginal barrel is still probably $70, $80 a barrel. Uh, I just don't see that even being realistic. Yeah, I mean, at $20 a barrel, you'd essentially only be able to invest in trying to get a bit more out of existing fields and not much more than that, and you'd see production dropping off 5% a year or something. That's pretty relentless. And if you were actually able to deploy enough EVs to cut a million or two million barrels a day from oil demand, it would probably reduce the long-run cost of oil. Yeah. Such that it would undermine the argument, or at least that the economic part of the argument, for going to EVs. Yeah, and also the economic argument for all the stuff that goes into making electric vehicles cheaper, like 
spending a lot on research to help batteries get cheaper. Now, just so folks don't misunderstand, I do think that EVs are going to have a phenomenal growth over the next decade. And I do think that only part of that is going to be driven by EVs being cheaper to drive. I think a lot of people are buying them now. I think we have a lot of incentives for them now that are not about price at all. They're about climate. They're about convenience. They're about carbon emissions. They're about helping the grid become more renewable and efficient apart from any particular oil price. Yeah. So... I do think that we're going to have a significant amount of growth, but I think also that this type of scenario here that BNEF has painted here isn't, you know, a lot of this just isn't very realistic to my mind. So, I mean, it's useful to think about what kind of rates would be required and then how to try to make that happen. But I don't think we should just look at these numbers and then assume that the problem has gone away because it's you know, possible to crunch some numbers and show how you can shave a lot of, of oil demand off. Right. So if not EVs, then what? I mean, what's the solution? What can we do? Could we reduce driving? And if so, how would that affect oil demand? Yeah, I mean, we could reduce driving a lot, I think, by switching to rail like you are a proponent of. Yeah. Or living in places where we don't have to commute as much doing more telecommuting, various things How much like oil that. could we save that way? I'm actually not sure exactly how much we'd be able to shave off. But if we look at a forecast like ExxonMobil's outlook to 2040, where they have growth of consumption for shipping and aviation and things like that, and then you are able to cut the the amount of consumption for road vehicles, so you know cars, but also trucks that deliver things and so on. If you're able to cut that, then you could actually have a peak of total consumption of oil without having to cut the consumption from these things like aviation that are harder to do because you can't have electric airplanes with the technologies that right. we have now. So, so do you think in theory we could cut enough demand deliberately to stay within the actual supply budget at a reasonable price? It's plausible, but it's not very likely. Like it would So you require... think we're still going to be looking at some economic damage due to high prices? Yeah, I'm, I'm very worried about that. Okay. Are you also worried about this possible deflationary scenario where... Oil prices are cheap, but we don't have enough economic vigor to maintain demand, even at low prices, and we just have kind of economic shrinkage. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of worrying signs like this right now where people are resorting to weird things like negative interest rates in order to try to get yeah. economic growth going again, and yeah. it's not really working very well. Yeah. So people are sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel on ideas of how to keep growth going. So you're one of the few people I can think of who's actually done some pretty close analysis, close analytical work on both oil and gas and on climate. Okay. And I've noticed a real debate between people that are very concerned about climate who think that peak oil doesn't matter because climate change is just a much bigger idea or a much bigger problem or maybe a more a more immediate problem because they think peak oil is farther off in the future mm -hmm. if at all 
Or there are people who think that peak oil is a more proximate or a, a bigger problem because it's going to happen before we experience this, the strong effects of climate change or because they think that it will be so damaging that our ability to produce oil at an acceptable price is kind of a secondary situation. So mm-hmm. it seems like there's a lot of people on the peak oil side that, that lack literacy in climate change and vice versa. You know, as somebody who's been on both sides of that, like, what do you think? Why do you think there's such a debate in the first place? And where do you come down on it? Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to focus on one problem and then try to convince people to take it seriously and to change policies and so on. And so then people will tend to focus on one thing or the other. And as it's developed, it's kind of split into these two camps, even though there's a lot of overlap where there are synergistic things that would help with climate change and help with peak oil. So it's like if you switched over to electric vehicles and those were also powered by some kind of clean energy like wind and solar, then it's great. It helps with peak oil and it helps with climate change. But it's difficult, I think, to talk to policymakers about two big problems at the same time and that have different forces behind them and different timescales that are involved and all these kind of things. And it's easier to just say, we need a price on carbon or we need to do all that we can to boost production of oil. So I think that's that's a lot of it. And kind of intellectual factions always form in any issue. And so people tend to split into one camp or another. Um, Is it just that hard to know a lot about climate change and to know a lot about peak oil? I mean, maybe it is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. They are pretty different subjects in some ways. Yeah, they are pretty different. And the people who are concerned about peak oil a lot of times come from a geology or physics background. And the people who are concerned about climate change often come from a different kind of background. But... I don't really know what is behind all of it, but uh, that's why I have switched from focusing on climate change to focusing on these oil issues was because climate was, you know, it's still not getting as much attention as it should. There's not as much action as, as there should be, but things are happening. People are talking about it. On the peak oil side, it's like not much discussion and what there is is not that great a lot of the time so i wanted to you know try to raise more attention to this issue right so which one do you think is the more immediate problem so i think peak oil is the more immediate problem and the reason for that is because of this feedback between oil prices and the state of the economy that we had talked about a bit before and that can actually affect how well we're able to make a transition off of oil and off of other fossil fuels. So I wrote an article about this for Nature Climate Change back in 2011 called The Big Squeeze. And I was looking at the rate of investment in renewable energy over time. It was going up and up, really fast growth rates, up until 2008 when the financial crash happened. And then it's kind of flatlined since then. In terms of its growth rate. Well, in terms of the amount spent per year on wind and solar. Although, uh, as Michael Liebreich correctly pointed out, I think, at a PNEF concert or uh, conference a year or two ago, the amount spent 
can stay flat or decline, but we can actually still have an increase in total deployment because the cost is coming down. Yeah, so that, that definitely helps. Yeah. But we need to be doing a lot more than we are. If the growth rate had been anywhere close to what it had been before the financial crash, if that had kept up until now, we'd be spending at least two times more per year than we are spending right now. Mm-hmm. And if the prices also came down at the same time, we would be deploying twice as much wind and solar as we have been. Right. So even though the prices have come down, we still need to be doing more. And we need to be worried about these interplays between oil production and the price of oil and the health of the economy and how that affects people's investment in things like renewables, especially because you have to put in all this money up front and then the payoff comes over time. At a time when the economy is not good, it's hard to get people to make those kind of investments. So it sounds like you're you're not really thrown in with BNEF on their EV forecast here. They're, you're not you're not thinking, oh, never mind peak oil as a supply side phenomenon or as a price phenomenon. That we're actually going to have a peak demand problem for the oil producers because demand is just going to evaporate under the intense growth of EVs. That's not your scenario. No. It would be nice if it worked out that way, but I just, I don't think it's likely. And so I don't think we should be complacent and assume, oh, you know, this is kind of how it's going to go. If we work really hard, maybe we could achieve that. It could be good as a goal. Right. If the PECAS succeeded in making their view heard, such that we actually took aggressive action to displace oil through things like EVs, mm-hmm. then that would be the best outcome. The yeah. best outcome would be for PECAS, for proponents of the peak oil theory, to be self-defeating. Yeah. So it could be that we do make this kind of transition to electric vehicles and other things that cut our oil consumption. Right. And then in 2030s or something, people will look back and they'll think that the... Peak oil wow, people were silly. were so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> it could happen. And and that would be the best outcome. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it would be the best outcome. Yeah. So what do you think M. King Hubbard would say about about where we are now? So he, he died when again? In 1989. He died in 89. So he saw, he died in a low price environment. He died after that, that big increase in production in the late 80s. Yeah. So he died when people were saying that he was dumb. Yeah, people were just kind of ignoring him at that point. Yeah, after saying that he was right, after ignoring him. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so he saw a full cycle and a half on his reputation, basically. Yeah. And on the way that people respond to, to peak forecasts. Mm-hmm. So after he died, then we had a period of relative stability, and then we had a variety of changes that resulted in a low oil price in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Ridiculously, though, I remember paying below a dollar a gallon at some point in 1999. Yeah. And then we had scarcity in the early 2000s that drove oil prices up to over $100 a barrel. Mm-hmm. And then we had the fracking phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And now here we are back at 30. So looking back on all of this volatility, I mean, what do you think Hubbard would be thinking about it? I think that he he never paid that much attention to the price of oil. And so I think he would say people are focusing way too much on what the price is in the short term 
instead of looking at where things are heading for the long term. So he thought, you know, price could bring on a bit more supply for a while, but you have to look at what the total amount that you might be able to get out of these different sources would be and how much of a difference that's going to make for the long term. So he would be frustrated, I think, with the discussion right now because it's not generally based on a long-term outlook or particularly rigorous analysis, I think. He never really gave up on the technocracy, did he? Like He, he, yeah. pr- he probably still held out hope that we could actually run... We could run a railroad, as it were, on the basis of data and knowledge and good modeling. I think he... Top-down planning. He gave up some of his hard ideas about that. He became more skeptical about people's ability to try to manage things reasonably. But he also thought that we could do a better job of trying to design our financial systems and our policies and all these things that shape how we use energy and how development proceeds. So, like, just to give one example of how he was still bringing up some of the technocratic ideas many decades later, one of their ideas in the 1930s was that everything should be paid for in terms of the energy that it took to make it. So they would issue this energy currency to everybody. That's right. They actually uh, advocated abolishing money. Yeah. And switching over to sort of an energy-based currency. Yeah. So that's pretty extreme. That would be a big change. (laughs) And so he still talked about that kind of thing in the 70s and 80s, where he was trying to argue that if we wanted to transition to a truly sustainable society, one that could keep running for centuries or even millennia, that it would require more than just, you know, some technological developments of ways of replacing oil or putting up more solar panels or something. And that would require us to change our financial systems and the way that we run things in government because all of that had been built on continual growth. And then trying to transition to a steady state economy would require new institutions so so he really ultimately did believe in a steady state economy yeah definitely and not just the economy but physical consumption of things and population and so on and living on renewable resources ultimately yeah because he always knew you know starting back in the 30s that fossil fuels are finite they're not going to last forever and he was trying to take a very long-term view like tens of thousands of years to put in perspective where we are right now and where we want to get to if we want to have an actual industrial civilization with all the great things that come along with that, but then somehow continue powering it without destroying the environment. So you got guys like Hubbard who thought about things on the scale of thousands or even tens of thousands of years for human development. Mm Mm-hmm being criticized mainly by people who operate in the markets and think about, like, day-ahead prices. Yeah. (laughs) Don't ever think about anything that long. Yeah. And that's where we are. We're still there. We're pretty much having the same dialogue today that we had in Hubbard's time. Yeah. The same people having the same arguments about the same things, holding the same positions. We still have the Cornucopians versus the Malthusians, or we have probably in, in Hubbard's time it was more again about you know whether or not you think the economy could be planned top down 
and ought to be because of possible resource constraints or whether you think that everything should be left up to sort of the laissez-faire operation of, of markets mm-hmm. and technology to just provide whatever it provides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hoping we can find something in the middle where we acknowledge the role that we can play in shaping markets and then try and do a better job of that that's based on real data. The question <laughs> is not resolved yet. I mean, Hubbard, I would say, is partially vindicated, but not fully. Saying that we probably were going to have a global peak in liquids, uh, 2005, 1995, somewhere in that zone, and having it actually happen in 2005, that was pretty damn good, especially being 30 years ahead of it. Yeah. His call on U.S. production was obviously pretty good. Yeah, so even though there was this unconventional boom, conventional oil has roughly followed what he was expecting. Right. So chances are good now that we're that we're moving into a new era, and he would be looking at this going, yeah, this is the point I was telling you guys about. Yeah. Yeah. And This is the should... one that I wanted you to plan for 30 <laughs> yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of depressing. But it's not, it's not, I but take... it's, the thing that's depressing to me is that it's the same debate Yeah. that we're having now 30 years, 40 years later. I mean, it's the same people holding down the same positions. It's still, we're still not doing our planning here on the basis of how much do we really think is there to produce? How quickly can we produce it? At what price? What effect would that have that on the economy? What sort of transportation infrastructure do we want to have 30 years from now what do we want it to look like like we're not doing that mm-hmm. we're just kind of leaving it up to whatever happens in loss of economics and the progress of technology and we're still kind of in those same camps that we were in before yeah so it's true that it is kind of stuck in this rut so I don't know what the answer is to try to get out of that other than to try to highlight that and then get people to talk about it more rationally. But I kind of am heartened by learning about how Hubbard approached these things where he didn't just throw up his hands after five years of talking about it and go, I give up on people, people are stupid. You know, he kept hammering these messages in over decades and, you know, you could say maybe he should have done something different because the message wasn't getting through. He should have changed how he was doing things. But still, he was really persistent, and I, I really admire that. And so mm. I'm trying to do the same kind of thing of, like, not getting discouraged, keep bringing up these points, keep trying to have a rational debate about these things that is actually based on data, and hopefully it will, even if it doesn't totally convince everybody... Hopefully it'll help make things go in a better direction. Well, right now the price is low, so no one will pay attention. And two years from now <laughs> when the price is high, everyone will think you're brilliant. So I'll get a lot of paperback sales. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> well, Mason, this has been really fun. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we finally had a chance to do a podcast together. And Yeah, me too. Uh, your, your book is really a fun read. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. You know, oh, thanks. I think geeks like us will really dig it. Yeah, so I I had fun writing it, and I hope that people have fun reading it and learn a lot, too, along the way. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much. 
That was Mason Inman, author of the new biography on M. King Hubbard, The Oracle of Oil, A Maverick Geologist's Quest for a Sustainable Future. I hope you've come away from this interview with a much better idea of what peak oil is and isn't about, and that the next time you hear someone say that because oil prices are high or low, that is proof that peak oil is real or isn't, that you'll realize how wrong that statement is. Unless you really believe that it's possible to forever increase your consumption of something on a finite planet, we will reach a point in time that we look back on and identify as the oil production peak, if we haven't passed that point already. And I do hope that when the all-liquids rate of production does finally decline, that it will be because we are deliberately doing without them, via fuel substitution or efficiency or one of those nice reasons, and not because the world is slipping into economic contraction. But it will be what it will be. More importantly, I hope this interview succeeded in answering all the big questions that people have about peak oil and what it means, and helped to cut through the kabuki theater about it a little bit and get down to the facts. Because I think it's high time we got beyond running around the circuit of these same old debates as we have for the past 60 years or so, and started acting like adults, capable of recognizing a problem and forming a plan to do something about it. Mere tribalism will not solve this, nor will optimism. We need to begin to understand this utterly remorseless data and start figuring out how we are going to live without oil, permanently. And I don't mean that we should revive technocracy or hope that we can formulate a top-down energy transition strategy and then execute it. It would be nice if we could do that, but I am realistic. No, what I do hope is that policymakers and entrepreneurs and researchers out there listening to this podcast will put their minds to the problem and start putting forth serious solutions that might get some traction. The time for debate is over. It's time for action. There's no Now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On March 11th, Oregon became the first state in the union to outlaw coal power. By 2030, the state must eliminate coal from its energy supply, and by 2040, it must generate half its electricity from renewables. There is only one coal-fired power plant left in the state since Oregon started phasing out coal-fired generation in the early 2000s. That plant generates about 6% of the state's electricity now and is scheduled for closure in 2020. But including imports, coal provides still about a third of Oregon's power. So while the plan doesn't guarantee that out-of-state plants will be closed, it's a way for the people of Oregon to avoid the risk of power prices going up in the future as carbon pricing or other regulations are placed on coal. And that symbolism is important, with pitch battles going on in the grid power sector in most U.S. states right now and the coal industry on the ropes. It's a good omen for energy transition. Item 2. Speaking of our dying coal industry, it appears that Peabody Energy, the longtime king of the U.S. coal industry, is on the verge of declaring bankruptcy, the last of the big U.S. coal companies to do so. At its peak in 2008, its coal fueled roughly 10% of all U.S. electricity and 2% of the global electricity. 
But now, after years of accumulating debt, having its CEO leave abruptly last June, and then doing a 1 for 15 reverse stock split last September, Peabody has fallen from $84 a share at its June 2008 peak to the equivalent of about $0.16 cents a share today on a split-adjusted basis, and its management has apparently all but given up on trying to figure out how to restructure the company. Like the rest of the once-mighty coal companies in the U.S. coal sector, Peabody simply could not, or would not, face the obvious decline of the industry that had been underway for decades, playing extend and pretend, and then just finally reach the end of its rope. And in case you haven't been following this story, the healthcare benefits of Peabody's retired workers will be going up in smoke as well via its 2007 spinoff of Patriot Coal, which has now gone bankrupt as well. As we discussed in episode one, this is a tragic outcome for generations of Americans who committed their lives to the U.S. coal industry only to be left in the cold. And by the way, it has come to light that Arch Coal, another fallen giant in the sector, awarded its executives $8 million in bonuses just days before it filed bankruptcy in January. So this is the legacy of the industry that provided half of America's electricity a decade ago. Ruined landscapes, ruined health, ruined lives, and unconscionable moral failures. We can't transition off of coal fast enough. Good riddance. And finally, item three. Probably the biggest energy transition story in recent weeks was about an IEA report, which asserted that global greenhouse gas emissions have decoupled from economic growth. Emissions stayed flat from 2013 through 2015, while the global economy continued to grow at around 3% per year. This makes intuitive sense, considering the decline in coal use in the U.S. and China particularly, and the simultaneous construction of a good deal of renewable energy capacity. But I am skeptical, and here's why. GDP is a notoriously messy metric. As Robert F. Kennedy famously said in a 1968 speech, Most national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonders in chaotic sprawl, it counts napalm, and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our city. It counts Whitman's rifle and Specs knife and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, for the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Can I just take a moment here to reflect on how far we've fallen from beautifully crafted rhetoric like this in a presidential stump speech to a live televised debate that kicked off with schoolyard taunts about penis sizes? Yish. Anyway, the point about that quote-unquote economic growth isn't an unambiguously good thing. A great deal of nastiness can hide in a number like GDP. Go to war, and your GDP goes up. Secondly, GDP can grow on the back of intangibles, like financial innovations, which generate money but don't translate into anything in the real world. 
And it can be manipulated. No savvy observers actually believe China's official numbers, for example. Third, making GDP grow is ostensibly the purpose of central banks' interventions like QE. And while most people would agree that those interventions starting in 2009 saved the global economy from meltdown, many observers believe that many of the world's economies have become dangerously dependent on such artificial stimuli, printing money out of thin air. Take that away and get down to real organic growth, and perhaps you don't actually have any. And finally, I don't think we can make too much of two years' worth of data for such gross measures. I have yet to find a detailed explanation of IEA's methodology for counting up global carbon emissions, but I'm willing to bet that there is a significant margin of error there. Now, some listeners might wonder why I would pour cold water on this story, a story that's definitely positive for the cause of energy transition. Well, I'll tell you, because I want to get the data right. I want our understanding of what's happening in the world to be accurate, not just comforting. There's no doubt that renewables have grown substantially over the last two years, and there's no doubt that we've retired a lot of coal capacity. But turning that into a broad statement about decoupling economic growth from emissions is an entirely different matter. We've already seen many we've already seen very similar claims made in recent years about improving energy intensity or peak demand for oil that are now falling apart under close scrutiny. So let's be careful to believe what we can unambiguously prove, not just what we want to believe. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.